When we think about learning, we probably think back to when we were in elementary or high school. Books in hand, piecing together sounds, learning our times table. We might think of babies learning to walk or talk. We might think of Warren Buffett reading, or of the time when you were trying to find out where the power button of the TV remote was. Yes, I've sadly been stumped more than once on that before. However, we're constantly learning. Our body learns when we go to sleep and when the sun rises, so that it can realign its circadian rhythm. We learn what the taste of bread is, so you can distinguish unbaked dough from bread right from the oven. But how do we go from not knowing any of this when we were just born to knowing these kinds of things without even thinking about it? For that, learning is key. Welcome to the Mystery of Your Mind a podcast about why we are the way we are. My name is Adbert Thomas, and we're here to learn about learning. One of the perhaps most important ways of learning is through something that is known as classical conditioning. In layman's terms, it's just called learning through association. First stumbled upon Russian Nobel Prize winner Ivan Pavlov in the 1890s, he was actually researching how salivation occurred in dogs who were being fed. In the course of his experiments, however, he noticed that dogs not only salivated when they smelled food, but also when they saw the white lab coats of the researchers themselves even if there wasn't any food. Just seeing the white lab coats was enough to provoke their salivation. Pavlov then conducted a number of his famous experiments in classical conditioning, like exposing these dogs to the sound of bells, the shine of a light, or a touch of the leg, while placing them in front of a bowl of food. All neutral stimuli or things that wouldn't normally make a dog want to drool in the first place. After presenting the dogs with the neutral stimuli while they were in front of food, Pavlov observed that the dogs would begin to salivate if they just heard that bell, or saw that shine of light, or felt that touch on the leg, even if there wasn't any food present. This is known as associative learning when someone or something associates a certain conditioned stimulus with a certain conditioned response. In this case, say, hearing the bell and salivating, but perhaps it's seeing something sharp on the floor and stepping away. The stimulus was seeing something sharp, and the action was avoiding it, because you learn to associate not stepping on the object, as avoiding the pain that would occur. Pavlov described the process of associative learning and classical conditioning in three phases. Before conditioning, 
during conditioning, and the after conditioning phase. During the before conditioning phase, the dog just drools, a natural response to the unconditioned stimulus of the smell of food. Naturally, if you put a dog in front of a bowl of food, it's going to salivate. That's considered, you know, normal behavior. The sound of the bell that's ringing in the background right now is what's called a neutral stimulus. The bell doesn't actually produce any drooling by itself. If you see a dog that's maybe on the street or something and you just ring a bell, it's not going to start salivating because that's not a natural response. In the during conditioning phase though, the unconditioned stimulus, the food, is paired with the neutral stimulus, the ringing of the bell. The dog naturally is going to drool when it smells the food, not because of the bell at first, only because there's food, the natural response to the food. However, after eating enough food or smelling the food for long enough and salivating, because of the food and the bell that is ringing, it begins to associate the sound of the bell with the smell of food or the presence of food or the necessity to salivate for food that will hopefully come. And after enough times, in a stage known as acquisition, the dog enters the after conditioning phase. The neutral stimulus of the bell has now become what's called a conditioned stimulus. And it causes the conditioned response of the dog drooling. In this case, the conditioned stimulus is the bell. So that means the bell was conditioned or it was learned through association to cause the conditioned response of drooling. Researchers say that classical conditioning is a way for people and things to adapt to their environment and better survive by changing their behavior. On the other hand, while classical conditioning is all about forming associations between stimuli, another type of learning, operant learning, is about strengthening or diminishing practices using reinforcers or punishers. If you've ever had your car beep constantly until you put your seatbelt on, or gotten a lollipop for saying thank you, or you were the person who gave a lollipop to someone for doing something good, you were using operant conditioning to learn or to make someone else learn something. The fundamental idea behind operant conditioning is that when given a reward, the frequencies of these behaviors that are rewarded increase, and when given a punishment, the frequency of such behavior decreases. Famous for designing his quote-unquote operant chamber, American behaviorist B.F. Skinner was one of the first leaders in the science of operant conditioning. In his operant chamber, also sometimes known as the Skinner box, an animal, usually a mouse, in a closed area could earn a reward, like food, 
for doing some sort of action. Usually it's pressing a button or pulling a lever. This box is a perfect example of what's called positive reinforcement, a stimulus that, when presented after a response, strengthens the response. Like classical conditioning, stimuli like pressing a button isn't a natural response. After all, as far as I know, there aren't really any food dispensing buttons out there in nature where mice can just go click a button and food will magically appear. Because of this, operant conditioning requires what's called shaping, where reinforcers guide behavior toward the desired behavior. This is quite similar to what you would do if you're training, say, a dog. You start off by giving a treat every time the dog sits down or stands up when you tell it to. Then, you only give a treat after the dog does some cool combo trick like sit, stand, lay down, and jump before you give it a treat. After a series of what's called successive approximations towards the desired behavior, you'll reward the dog with a treat only when they complete the entire move combo of whatever you want them to do. And when you continue to give the dog a treat, a type of reinforcer, when it does its little combination of cool moves, the frequency of the behavior, in this case doing the combination of commands, increases. Although this may seem almost intuitive, negative reinforcement isn't. Negative reinforcement works by removing some sort of negative stimulus when the desired behavior is carried out. Let's go back to the car beeping constantly until you put your seatbelt on example. The car is actually operantly conditioning you to put on your seatbelt to remove the annoying beeping noise. By removing the negative stimulus of the beeping, your seatbelt wearing is reinforced. And an important note here, although negative reinforcement does have the term negative in it, it is not the same as punishment. Stealing your child's phone is not providing negative reinforcement, at least through operant conditioning. Punishment works in a way by decreasing the frequency of a behavior, either positively, like sending your child to a timeout corner for a few minutes, or negatively, like taking away their phone or gaming devices. Back to reinforcers. There are different types of reinforcers and reinforcement strategies out there. Primary reinforcers are where the stimulus has an innate tendency to reinforce itself by, say, solving a biological need or desire. Let's go back to when you gave the lollipop to a kid for doing something good. Giving a lollipop to someone for doing something good 
serves the biological necessity for food and nourishment. And because we want food and we want nourishment to stay alive, that stimulus, giving a lollipop to someone, has an innate tendency to increase whatever behavior they did to get the lollipop so that they can continue to get that food or nourishment. Same deal with the beeping car. It serves the natural desire for us to remove a pestilence from our environment. There are also conditioned reinforcers, which are stimuli that reinforce through the association with a primary reinforcer. So, for example, you'll get a paycheck for doing your job well, which can be used to buy you food. The primary reinforcer is having food and eating it, which, through association with the conditioned reinforcer, which is doing your job well, you naturally learn that doing your job well means the capability of having food and maybe supporting a family or just yourself. Because of that, the conditioned reinforcer of doing your job well reinforces through the primary reinforcer. There's also something called continuous reinforcement, which is actually a reinforcement strategy where you're constantly reinforcing a behavior. So giving your dog a treat every single time it does a trick, or giving the mouse in the Skinner box a treat every single time it pushes the button or pulls on the lever. What continuous reinforcement is great at is helping you learn things really quickly. However, it's also more likely to face what's called extinction, where you lose the connection between the desired behavior and the desired action. So, if you want this practice or this behavior to sort of stand the test of time, you're going to look into a different reinforcement strategy, what's called partial reinforcement or intermittent reinforcement. In partial reinforcement, you only reinforce a response sometimes. And as a response, it takes longer to learn or to acquit a response, but it's also more likely to resist that extinction. So, maybe not giving your dog a treat every single time it does a trick, but maybe doing it when it does a trick exceptionally well, or maybe occasionally in between it doing its little combo tricks, so that even though it takes a little longer for it to learn that behavior of doing its little combination of tricks, it's more likely to stay in the dog's mind and brain and be able to recall that later, and form an association between doing a trick and getting some food. As a result of kind of both the pros and cons of continuous reinforcement and partial or intermittent reinforcement, a lot of people end up doing some kind of hybrid between the two. You might do continuous reinforcement to teach a dog how to do a combination of tricks, but then you switch to partial reinforcement so that the 
dog remembers and learns and keeps that memory and that association between its behavior of doing the combination of tricks and getting food as a response. However, no matter what reinforcer or reinforcement strategy you use, no matter through classical or operant conditioning, our learning, in large part, is due to external stimuli. Or what happens outside, what happens around us in our environment, and not to do with what's going on in our mind. Or so we would think. In this episode, I was looking through the lens of behaviorism, or learning through the environment. But in the next episode, I'll be looking on the other side of the coin for learning. Cognitivism. Thanks so much for listening to the ninth episode of The Mystery of Your Mind, a podcast about some of the most existential questions about life and ourselves. If you love the content that I create, and you want to support me on my exploration to learn more about ourselves, our minds, and our world, the simplest thing for you to do is just rate me on whichever app you're using. It helps connect so many other people to this podcast so that they can learn a bit more about themselves and their world. But don't forget to also tell all your family, friends, and whoever else you know about this podcast channel the mystery of your mind, so that they can learn a little bit more about their world and themselves as well. You can also check out my website. I've linked it in the description of this episode. And if you explore it, you can learn a bit more about myself, this podcast, and you can even submit your own feedback and suggestions so that this podcast can continue to improve and that you love this podcast just as much as I do. I've also inserted a link to my Instagram account, at the mystery of your mind, so that you can get all of the latest updates about the show, and a little preview about what future episodes are going to be about. You can also DM me and give me some feedback about what you love about the show, what you don't, what I should improve on, what kind of topics you'd like to see, and whatever else you'd like to say. I've also inserted a link to my Patreon if you'd like to support me that way. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the ninth episode of The Mystery of Your Mind.